Once again, it's a joy to be here in fellowship with you all. And uh, this morning, I'm going to speak on something which I don't believe we've spoken on before here at Bridge Lane. And that's the book of Obadiah. Obadiah. Now, before we begin, it will help to understand a little about the background and history of the prophecy of Obadiah. And we also need to be able to find Obadiah in our Bibles, don't we? (laughs) Obadiah is one of the minor prophets. I always like to say that if you're talking about the minor prophets, it's because you've got to dig around a bit to find them. But if you've got the church Bibles, it's on page 1065 to make it easy for you. And Obadiah sits between Joel and Amos, or after Joel and Amos, and before Jonah and Micah. So if you want to be ready with Obadiah, if you haven't got the church Bible, I do what I have to do and thumb through to find it. But uh, we'll shortly be opening the prophecy of Obadiah. Obadiah's name means servant of the Lord. Only 21 verses, the shortest book in the Hebrew Scriptures. And one that's generally accepted to be perhaps one of the most difficult of the prophetic writings to interpret, since there's no specific information regarding the date of writing or to which conflicts the prophecy refers. Uh, You'll be pleased to know that I'm not going to even try to enter into that uh, area in any detail. But one thing's very important for us, and that's that the central theme of Obadiah and its prophetic outlook are important for us to understand. So before we look at Obadiah, let's pray. Father, as we look at this short prophecy given by your servant Obadiah, I pray, Lord, that you'd help us to open our hearts and minds to what you have to say through your word, because you gave us every single word that we read in the Bible, and every single word is there for a purpose. Father, help us to to be diligent as we study your word. But Father, I pray particularly that I would be diligent this morning to give your words and not my words. And Father, some parts of this prophecy are hard to understand, some of them perhaps quite hard to hear. But we pray, Lord, that through your grace, you would open your word to us this morning and bless the public reading of your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Well... The subject of Obadiah is Edom. And it's interesting to note that there are more references to Edom in the Hebrew scriptures than to almost any other single nation. (coughs) Obadiah proclaimed a coming divine judgment on Edom. But he also gave hope to Israel by reminding them of the future that he'd promised them. Historically, Obadiah's prophecy relates to the rivalry between Jacob and Esau, a rivalry that began while they were still in Rebekah's womb. In Genesis 25, verses 22 and 23, we read this. And the children struggled together within her. And she, Rebekah, said, If it be so, why am I thus? And she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said unto her, Two nations are in thy womb, and two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels, And the one people shall be stronger than the other people, and the elder shall serve the younger. But in Obadiah, we don't read so much of Esau, we read of Edom. Well, that's not an issue, since they are both one and the same. 
In Genesis 25, verse 30, we read that Esau was called Edom when he asked Jacob, if you remember, to give him that stew that he'd made. And in Genesis 36, verse 43, we read that Esau is called the father of the Edomites. We read in the Bible that Jacob and his descendants suffered. They were chastised by God, but their ultimate destiny is restoration. Whereas Esau and his descendants were proud, rebellious, and defiant, and their destiny was destruction. And that's what's described in Obadiah. It's quite interesting to remember that Jesus came from the line of Jacob, but Herod came from the line of of Esau and both Herod and Jesus were kings of the Jews weren't they the prophecy of Obadiah is a warning to all that God will judge and severely punish any who harm his people so let's begin by reading the first four verses of Obadiah I'm going to try and read my glasses aren't very good for reading I'm going to try and read from the new King James which you've got the vision of Obadiah Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom, We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations, saying, Arise, and let us rise up against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You should be greatly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who dwell in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is high, you who say in your heart, Who will bring me down to the ground? Though you descend as high as the eagle, and though you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, says the Lord. Obadiah receives a vision, a message from the Lord concerning Edom. A messenger will be sent to the nations, Goyim, the heathen, telling them to rise up and fight against Edom in battle. The Lord tells Edom that he's made them to look small, in the eyes of those who will come against her, and that her enemies will greatly despise her. In verse 3, we read that Edom was proud of heart and deceived by her pride. Edom boasted, who shall bring me down to the ground? Why why were the Edomites so sure of their impregnability? They're sure, sure of their position. Well, one reason is that they dwelt in the clefts of the rock we read in the king james whose habitation is high they're in the clefts of the rock whose habitation is high see the edomites lived in the area that we now know today as petra ancient selah how many of you have ever been to petra okay a couple of you well if you haven't and you get the opportunity i highly recommend it how many of you have seen raiders of the lost ark i haven't but how many of you have Uh, One or two confess to having seen those movies. Okay. Well, you remember as uh, Indiana Jones travels down through Al-Sikh, through what is the gorge that leads to Petra, and he he, he travels, you can see that narrow entrance, can't you, into the stronghold as he comes across what we call the Treasury Building. So you can get a picture, if you've seen that film, of what Petra looks like. One thing I find fascinating when we read about Obadiah and Edom is that if ever you go to Petra, and those of you who have been that will know, the rocks as you go into Petra are predominantly red sandstone. And of course, Edom means red or ruddy. 
And the Edomites dwelt in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is high. And it was because of this, because the area was well protected by the Rocky Mountains, that they considered themselves to be impregnable. And as a result, Edom had become proud. And they challenged God by asking, who shall bring me down to the ground? It was as if they were saying, look, I'm too biggie, I'm too important, I'm invincible. Don't you even try it. Pride. Among other things, pride is this. It's arrogance, it's conceit, it's self-importance, and it's superiority. It would seem that we've read so far that the Edomites were probably perhaps guilty of all of these things. And Proverbs warns that pride brings shame, Proverbs 8.13. It brings contention, Proverbs 13, verse 10. Pride goes before destruction, Proverbs 16, verse 18. And pride brings a person down, Proverbs 29.23. The Edomites' pride gave them a false sense of security. That's what pride does. It's arrogance, it's self-importance, it's conceit. And they all combine to give a false sense of security. And we have that saying here, don't we? Pride goes before a fall, which rather sums up those verses in Proverbs. Edom had rebelled against God, and they were deceived into thinking that they were safe and secure in this high, rocky dwelling place of theirs. They believed, in fact, that they could live without God. But in James chapter 4, verse 6, and 1 Peter 5, verse 5, we read that God resists the proud. The Lord responds to the pride of Edom in verse 4 that we've just read. Though you exalt yourself as the eagle, and though you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, says the Lord. J. Vernon McGee makes an interesting observation on this verse. He says, pride was the sin of Satan. He, that Satan, said, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will be like the Most High. Read that in Isaiah 14, verses 13 and 14. McGee says, Pride was also the root of Nebuchadnezzar's insanity. He strutted like a peacock in the palace of his kingdom of Babylon. And Daniel 4, verse 30 tells us that the king spake and said, Is this not great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom by the might of my power and for the honor of my majesty? Referring to verse 3, Magee describes the pride of the heart as the attitude of a life that declares its ability to live without God. We find here in the book of Obadiah that pride of heart had lifted up this nation of Edom just like Esau who had despised his birthright. Even in the home of Isaac, where there was plenty to eat, he liked that bowl of soup, and he liked it more than he liked his birthright. He didn't care for God at all. In despising that birthright, he despised God. And now Esau had become a great nation that had declared its ability to live without God. J. Vernon McGee. Satan's desire is to set himself above God and make his nest in the stars. But the Lord told Satan in verse 14, 15 of Isaiah 14, you should be brought down to hell, to the sides of the pit. In verse 4 of what we've just read, Obaziah uses a similar language in relation to Edom. He tells them that though they might think of themselves as an eagle nesting among the stars, he would punish their pride by bringing them down. Well, I think we all need to be mindful of the fact that we should not be like the prideful Edomites and 
deceive ourselves into thinking that we can live our lives without God. Amen? So moving on, the accusations against Edom continue in verses 5 through 9. We read there, if thieves had come to you, if robbers by night, oh, how you will be cut off. Would they not have stolen till they had enough? If grape gatherers had come to you, would they not have left some gleanings? Oh, how Esau shall be searched out, how his hidden treasures shall be sought after. All the men in your confederacy shall force you to the border. The men at peace with you shall deceive you and prevail against you. Those who eat your bread shall lay a trap for you. No one is aware of it. In verses 5 and 6, we see that the coming judgment upon Eden will be worse than if robbers had come in the night. At least if robbers would, would cease their plunder when, and leave when they'd either taken enough or they couldn't carry any more. And likewise, when grapes or when the vines are harvested, grapes, some gleanings are left behind. And the picture here is that robbers and marauders do not destroy everything. But when God judges Edom, their destruction will be complete, and we'll see that shortly. Verses 5 and 6 that we've just read are also quoted by Jeremiah. Chapter 49, verses 9 and 10, Jeremiah says, If grape gatherers come to thee, would they not leave some gleaning grapes? If thieves by night, they will destroy till they have enough. But I have made Esau bare. I have uncovered his secret places, and he shall not be able to hide himself. Deceived by their pride, the Edomites thought they were safe from being discovered in their stronghold of Petra. But the Lord will expose them. Does pride ever cause us to think that we can hide things from God? I trust that we never think that, but it's possible, isn't it? The Edomites believed that they could not only hide from their enemies, but they could also hide from God. They'd forsaken God's word. They'd ignored the fact that he is all-seeing and all-knowing. Neither the Edomites nor you and I, in fact, can hide anything from God. There's a prayer in the Anglican tradition. It takes me back to my early days. A prayer in the Anglican tradition that reminds us of this fact. It goes like this. Almighty God, unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid, Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of thy Holy Spirit, that we may perfectly love thee and worthily magnify thy holy name through Christ our Lord. I just love that prayer. There's some depth of meaning to it, isn't there? Obadiah chapter, or verse 7, goes on to say, All the men in your confederacy shall force you to the border. The men at peace with you shall deceive you and prevail against you. Those who eat your bread shall lay a trap for you. No one is aware of it. The Edomites were proud of their political alliances, but God would break their pride and bring them low. They trusted other ungodly nations for their security rather than the Lord, but the Lord would use the very object of Edom's trust to destroy her. You know, the Lord often uses false gods that people rely on to do this. Allies in ungodliness can also turn out to be enemies eventually. Obadiah paints an illustration of Edomites sitting down to eat with their allies and not perceiving the 
treacherous trap being laid for them. Something clouds or blinds their eyes. What was preventing them from seeing the truth of what was happening? Well, the answer is actually in verses 8 and 9. The Lord says, Will I not in that day, says the Lord, even destroy the wise men from Edom and understanding from the mountains of Esau? Then your mighty men, O Timan, shall be dismayed to the end that everyone from the mountains of Esau may be cut off by slaughter. The Edomites were a proud people, and among other things, they were proud of their reputation for wisdom. Jeremiah asks this of Edom in chapter 29, sorry, chapter 49, verse 7. Jeremiah says, or the Lord says, concerning Edom, thus saith the Lord of hosts, is wisdom no more in Timam? Is counsel perished from the prudent? Is their wisdom vanished? Both Obadiah and Jeremiah mention this Timam, this place called Timam. So it causes us to ask a question, what is Timam to do with Edom? Well, the name Timon comes from a grandson of Esau, and the city of Timon was situated in the southern part of Edom. In fact, one of Job's friends, Eliphaz, was a Temanite, Timonite. And here we have an example of how the Lord not only judges the pride of Edom by removing their wisdom, he even removes their ability to discern that their wisdom has been taken away. This results in their inability to either discern or, or, or even avoid the betrayal of their so-called allies. And this will lead to their total destruction. Wisdom is something we're all encouraged to pray for, isn't it? We all need wisdom, don't we? We need wisdom to see what's happening around us in our own lives, how the Lord is leading us, etc. But here... Edom was so proud that their wisdom was taken away. And as we move on to the next verses, the charge that's laid against Edom and their subsequent judgment is clearly laid out. Verses 10 through 14. We just read verse 10 for a moment. We read there in verse 10, For violence against your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. Let me read that charge against Edom another way verse 10 for your Hamas against thy brother Jacob will be taken away do you notice that word that Hebrew word Hamas it brings us back to something we mentioned earlier that rivalry between Esau and Jacob which originated when Jacob deceived Isaac into thinking he was Esau and as a result, in Genesis 27, verse 41, we read that Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing wherewith his father blessed him. And Esau said in his heart, The day of mourn, days of mourning from my father are at, hand, are at hand. Then will I slay my brother Jacob. See, Esau's destruction also prophesied in Amos chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because he did pursue his brother with the sword and did cast off all pity. And his anger did, did tear perpetually and he kept his wrath forever. But I will send a fire upon Timon which will devour the palaces of Bosra. Timon, Edom, Bosra, we recognise as probably being Petra. 
And the fact is there are no Edomites in existence today. Herod the Great was from Idumea. He was an Edomite. And historically, the Edomites died out when Herod's dynasty came to an end, thus fulfilling God's word. And so we now know the charge against Edom and the punishment to come. But notice that, or we'll read on to see that it wasn't only for violence for Hamas against Jacob. Edom was guilty of far more than violence. Jacob and Esau were brothers. And from the very beginning, there was that struggle between them that never ceased. The hatred and the bitterness in the relationship never healed. And this caused Esau, Edom, to stand by and to do nothing when the Babylonians attacked Israel. And we can see that detailed in Obaziah, verses 11 through 14. The Lord says, In the day that you stood on the other side, in the day that strangers carried captive his forces, when foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, even you were as one of them. But you should not have gazed on the day of your brother in the day of his captivity, nor should you have rejoiced over the children of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor should you have spoken proudly in the day of distress. You should not have entered the gate of my people in the day of their calamity, Indeed, you should not have gazed on their affliction in the days of their calamity, nor laid hands on their substance in the days of their calamity. You should not stood at the crossroads to cut off those among them who escaped, nor should you have delivered up those among them who remained in the day of distress. Edom's lack of action to save Israel reminds me of a time a few years ago where Maggie and I were on a Christian leaders course at Yad Vashem. And Christian Leaders' course was all about the Holocaust. It was a tough 10 days. We learned an awful lot, but it was hard going. But there was one principle that we learned, and that was that in any situation where an individual or a group of people are being attacked, there are three categories of people involved. There are perpetrators, there are bystanders, and there are victims. Our tutors taught us that two of these groups had choices. Both the perpetrators and the bystanders had choices. The bystanders had three choices. They could stand back and do nothing. They could choose to turn informer and hand people into the authorities, or they could choose to help those in need in spite of personal danger. The victims, on the other hand, our tutors said would have what they call as a choiceless choice. In other words, the choice of the victim was made for them. And here we can see that Edom was a bystander. And Edom made a choice. Rather than helping Israel in their time of need, they chose to stand back and do nothing to help. Instead, in verse 11, they joined Israel's enemies. In verse 12, they rejoiced over Israel's calamity. In verse 13, they looted and plundered after the enemy had left. And in verse 14, finally, they either blocked their escape by standing at the crossroads or directed the Babylonians to where they were hiding. Does any of that sound familiar to you? I'm sure all of you would notice again that this Hebrew word for violence, Hamas, is the same name as the name of the Palestinian terrorist group that committed such brutal atrocities against innocent Israeli citizens on October 7th last year. 
As Hamas murdered, raped, and tortured over a thousand innocent Israelis, they rejoiced. They gloated. They even filmed their brutality. They boasted about how many they'd murdered. They looted and plundered. They blocked their escape. Perpetrators and victims. But what about bystanders? In spite of the graphic evidence, many Western nations remain silent bystanders, ignoring the horrors perpetrated against God's people. The international women's organizations like UN Women refuse to condemn the brutal sexual crimes perpetrated by Hamas terrorists against hundreds of Israeli women. College and university lecturers openly supported and even praised Hamas. Much of the media downplays Israel's suffering, and some even blame Israel for defending herself. And what we've found is that over time, the initial outcry about the massacre and the hundreds of Israeli hostages taken by Hamas fell silent. And anti-Semitism has reached an all-time high. If ever you get a chance to go on the internet and look at the Community Security Trust's report for last year, the last three months in particular are horrendous. Obadiah could not be clearer. Those bystanders who remain silent in the face of evil are like one of them. Obadiah prophesies that the time will come when those hundreds of thousands who march on the streets calling for the destruction of Israel and those American and other professors who called for the slaughter or called the slaughter of October the 7th heroic and a great achievement. They're all going to be held to account. God will hold those people and those nations who support Hamas and anybody else who ties to harm God's people, he will hold them accountable. If I slightly paraphrase verse 12, we could read it this way. You should not have rejoiced about the children of Judah on the day of their destruction, and you should not have spoken proudly on the day of their distress. But Obadiah speaks of Esau and Edom, not the Palestinians, so is there any any connection? A Jewish source makes this comment. I I get some information from a Jewish source, theisraelbible.com. Some of it's quite helpful and interesting. And one of the authors on that site wrote this. Since Jews began returning to the land of Israel in the late 19th century, they have faced no shortage of enemies. Surrounded by hostile nations, Israel has overcome many powerful and frightening foes. Yet the one enemy that Israel has not yet found a way to overcome is perhaps the least likely of all, the Palestinians. The very name Palestinians is misleading, for the modern-day Palestinians do not descend from and bear no relation to the ancient Philistines who dwelled in Israel's or along Israel's coast in biblical times. Nevertheless, the writer says, today's Palestinians share something in common with the Philistines of old. For the Philistines of the biblical era were also the Jewish people's most persistent and difficult adversary. It's an interesting parallel that he draws. I just need to make a a small statement here because Israel is very clear that her battle is not against the Palestinian people, it's against Hamas. And in any group of people there are going to be innocent people and guilty people. Many people have lost their lives in this conflict and any loss of innocent lives is to be regretted, whether it be Palestinian or Israeli. Israel holds 
life as one of their highest moral ideals. And we need to remember that. Israel does not glorify death, but life. And we're talking of here of those who perpetrated violence, both in what I've just said, but also in, in Obadiah. For example, we can see in the scriptures that those who perpetrate violence will pay a very high price. Psalm 11, verses 5 and 6. The Lord trieth the righteous, but the wicked and him that loveth violence, loveth Hamas, it's that word again, his soul hateth. Upon the wicked he shall rain snares, fire and brimstone, and a horrible tempest. This shall be the portion of their cup. That God hates violence is a certainty. And in Hebrews 10 verse 31, we read that it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. But let's return to our text. The root cause of Edom's Hamas, her violence, was pride and the belief that they could live without God. Pride, or at least the wrong sort of pride, is one of the most dangerous emotions that we can have. Remember how we said earlier that pride was also arrogance and conceit, self-importance or superiority? There's an interesting verse related to just what we've read there in Obadiah 1 verse, uh, in Psalm 73 verse 6, I beg your pardon. Speaking of the wicked, Asaph says this. He says, therefore pride compasseth them about as a chain. Hamas, violence, covers them as a garment. Psalm 73 verse 6. The psalmist links pride with violence. Spurgeon writes of this particular verse in the Psalms. He says, therefore pride compasseth them about as a chain. They are as great in their own esteem as if they were aldermen of the New Jerusalem. They want no other ornament than their own pomposity. No jeweller could sufficiently adorn them. They wear their own pride as a better ornament than a gold chain. Violence covereth them as a garment. In their boastful arrogance they array themselves. They wear the livery of the devil and are fond of it. As soon as you see them, you perceive that room must be made for them. For regardless of the feelings and rights of others, they intend to have their way and achieve their own ends. They brag and bully, bluster and browbeat, as if they'd taken out a license to ride roughshod over all mankind. Words of Spurgeon. That pride can lead to violence is evidenced both in Obadiah and here in the psalm. And as the prophecy of Obadiah draws to a close, we read of the ultimate judgment of God's enemies and also, and here's the good part, Israel's survival in the coming kingdom. In verses 15 and 16, Edom is warned that just as they perpetrated violence on Judah, they will, always, they will also suffer. Look at verses 15 and 16. For the day of the Lord upon all the nations is near. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your reprisal shall return upon your own head. For as you drink on my holy mountain, so shall all nations drink continually. Yes, they shall drink and swallow, and they shall be as though they had never been. But, and here it is, here's the but, Israel one day will be blessed. Hallelujah. Verse 17. But on Mount Zion shall there be deliverance 
and there shall be holiness. The house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. Israel has and still is suffering at the hands of her enemies. And it seems as though this is lasting forever, doesn't it? It's going on and on and on. No sooner do they overcome one opposition, another one comes up. But in God's timing, her suffering is only temporary. And her deliverance will come. Amen? Amen. Verse 18. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame. But the house of Esau shall be stubble. They shall kindle them and devour them, and no survivor shall remain of the house of Esau. For the Lord has spoken. Esau and Edom were ultimately defeated, burned up its stubble in the harvest. Nothing will remain of them. The Lord said in Genesis 12:3, didn't he? I will bless those who bless you, and those who curse you or hold you in derision, I will curse. All who fail to bless Israel will eventually pay a price. Notice that. All who fail to bless Israel will eventually pay a price. So that brings us to the climax of Obadiah's prophecy in verses 19 through 21. The south shall possess the mountains of Esau, and the lowlands shall possess Philistia. They shall possess the fields of Ephraim and the fields of Samaria. Benjamin shall possess Gilead, and the captives of this host of the children of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. The captives of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad shall possess the cities of the south. Then Saviour shall come to Mount Zion to judge the mountains of Esau and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. The kingdom shall be the Lord's. Throughout history, Satan has used many people and nations in his attempt to destroy the people of Israel. In Psalm 83, verse 4, familiar words, I think, to many of us, they have said, come and let us cut them off from being a nation, that the name of Israel may be no more in remembrance. And we hear these words being repeated still on the streets of cities around the world in the 21st century. The chant of from the river to the sea, demanding genocide of Israel, the destruction of all Jewish people, is now a common occurrence. It's rather sad that many who are repeating this don't even know what river they're referring to. Contrary to these chants, Verses 19 and 20 clearly indicate that Israel will once again possess all of the land that God promised them in the Abrahamic covenant. Let me repeat that. Israel will one day possess all of the land that God promised them. And then finally, in verse 21, we read that saviors or deliverers shall come to Mount Zion to judge the mountains of Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. I mentioned earlier that the Edomites had been completely obliterated, destroyed at the end of the um, Herodian dynasty, somewhere around about AD 70. They no longer exist. Do you know any Edomites? Do you know anybody that knows an Edomite? No. That which Esau or Edom represents are the Gentile nations, the Goyim. And in the end times, those Gentile nations, 
Satan's army that come against Jerusalem. We read that, don't we, in the, the campaign or the battle of Armageddon. That army will finally be destroyed when Jesus returns to this earth at his second advent. And brothers and sisters, we're drawing nearer and nearer to that time. Are you ready? Are you ready for that event? Are you prepared? Is your heart knitted with that of the Lord? Ready for that call? I'd like to close this message with a summary of Obadiah from my life application Bible. It reads, The book of Obadiah shows the outcome of the ancient feud between Edom and Israel. Edom was proud of its high position, but God would bring her down. Those who are high and powerful today should not be overconfident in themselves, whether they are a nation, a corporation, a church, or a family. Just as Edom was destroyed for its pride, so will anyone be who lives in defiance of God. All who defy God will meet their doom as Edom did. Any nation who trusts in its power, wealth, technology, or wisdom, more than in God, will be brought low. All who are proud will one day be shocked to discover that no one is exempt from God's justice. God will judge and fiercely punish all who harm his people. We can be confident in God's final victory. Amen. Amen Amen and amen. Let's just commit this to the Lord. Father, we, we thank you for these words of Obadiah. Lord, hard words, harsh words perhaps. Tough words to hear, tough words to share, tough words to read. We find ourselves in a situation where, once again, the nations are coming against Israel. Father, we do pray that the time will come soon when violence, Hamas, can be defeated, when the hostages can be released. And when Israel can once again rest safely in her own country. Pray, Lord, that you would turn the tide of hatred. That you would prick the hearts of those who are standing against Israel without even really understanding why. But above all, Lord, we pray for the peace of Jerusalem and the salvation of your people, Israel. We thank you, Lord, for that promise and hope that you've not just given us of eternal life, but that promise that you've given Israel, that one day all Israel will be saved. Father, help us to be always ready, not just to have a reason for the hope that lies within us, but to be ready with words of comfort and encouragement to your people, Israel, to those Jewish people that we know that we meet, And may you see your word in our hearts this morning and these coming days. In Jesus' name, amen.